Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cycle 4 episode of the Backpages podcast. The first 40 minutes of this podcast is really all about cultural appropriation, which you all had a lot of questions about. And so we take an extended example around one topic that illustrates the historical context and power dynamics involved with cultural appropriation. And then it moves to gut checks and better ways forward. Then there's about 20 minutes of us talking about our point of view on why we took a historical approach to this pilgrimage and how it connects to our faith. Which I think is really important to think a little bit more about, not just because it's interesting background, but because we need to know how we're going to talk about this going forward as we explain what this pilgrimage was to each of us. Exactly. And then we spend almost 20 minutes talking about mistakes. Mistakes that we made in Cycle 4, but also how dynamics of perfectionism can undermine us at times in anti-racism work, and some of the digital spaces where our responsibilities to own our missteps or mistakes can get a little bit tricky. And how we can begin to talk about how it feels when we're getting it more right. So given all of this, we'll drop some shortcut links in the YouTube description for those specific sections so that you can pace yourself and maybe even listen in chunks if that works for you. Right. So this, therefore, is now our mega podcast, (laughs) kind of delayed from cycle four, part two. And we hope that despite its imperfections, that it can point you towards some interesting insights, some resources, and more. So let's get started. We wanted to start off today with sort of the hot topic of the questions that came out of this cycle, which was the difference between appropriation and appreciation when it comes to culture. And this was the thing that we got the most comments and questions on. There was a lot of curiosity, maybe even a little anxiety. So we're going to talk a little bit about grounding, how to do some gut checks, and some better ways forward. So we'll start with a few caveats. First of all, there is no way to talk about cultural appropriation and have a final definitive opinion of all BIPOC peoples. It's just not possible because they uh, there are multi-vocal communities and obviously many, many communities who have different opinions about this. So that's not what this is. Plus, this issue engenders multi-generational disagreements that have real weight in the conversation. So first-generation immigrants, some boomer era and beyond BIPOC folks, and some folks from lesser-known cultures may not even be interested or even really see an issue at all with the idea of cultural appropriation. And that's not to discount this perspective, but to say that we're not going to prioritize it here because it often is less interested in the power analysis and the systemic issues of racism that we know to be at play. Right. So it's an important perspective and one that gets to be a part of the conversation. But when we're thinking about anti-racism, we're thinking about what are people who have an anti-racism perspective on this conversation saying and talking about. So Speaking of that, this is also not going to be a permission slip or a no-fail guide. That is also not going to be reasonable. And it's also kind of some white dreaming that such complicated dynamics with the weight of history behind them would have clear, obvious solutions. But this is uh, an invitation to hone our intuition and to practice humility. Okay, so as we're kind of getting into this, the first thing we want to do is get some grounding. Because... 
when we start throwing around these terms and throwing around, well, what are we supposed to do? And what does that look like? And all this sort of thing. First, we have to get clear about what is the conversation around cultural appropriation even really about? And we would say that this conversation is fundamentally about the power issues that come along when colonialism and whiteness are added into the conversation about cultural exchange. So in other words, power and history. And some might hear, but this is about sharing and that's what cultures do. And, you know, that's, it's just not exactly true. I mean, first of all, when you share with someone, usually it's because you trust them or you're already in relationship with them. And some of those things are the exact things that are missing when cultural appropriation happens. Um, but also just recognizing that that's a dynamic of spiritual boundaries. So that's why we brought up the, the practice, the, capacity to have spiritual boundaries in our conversation, because that's such a big part of cultural exchange in the context of anti-racism and just power in general. Also, history shows that it's just a more complex thing than just we should be able to share with one another, because that's hardly ever been exactly true, but it's certainly not true in the context of having a very uneven playing field in the context of racism and and colonialism and all those sorts of other things. So we'll get to that history component of this topic of cultural appropriation in a second, but first we want to define our terms. So when we're talking about cultural appropriation, what for the context of this conversation what we're trying to talk about is the inappropriate use of marginalized cultures, including customs, practices, ideas, arts and crafts, and so on, by historically dominant colonizing cultures. And to be clear, we're really mostly talking about white European people in the context of this conversation, because we're not going to get into how does that work for for other parts of the world where, where most of us on this podcast have very little direct contact. So I think the other piece to recognize here is the word inappropriate in the context of appropriation. And that word gets to be defined by cultural insiders, what is appropriate and inappropriate. Now, appreciation, on the other hand, is all about humble learning and exploration of other cultures as a perpetual guest and a novice that directs resources to cultural experts and insiders, whereas appropriation would direct resources to maybe watered down, quote, teachers. Now let's talk about history and its very important impact on this issue of cultural appropriation. So we're going to talk about this by using one extended example. And in this case, it's going to be yoga. So when we think of yoga in the white Western context that dominates the U.S. conversation about yoga... We might think of a young, white, female person with a thin body who is non-disabled, sort of pretzeling their body into a very complicated looking position. We might think of yoga that's for quote unquote fitness or better abs or something like that. We might even think of yoga that's marketed for better sex or just yoga as a way to generate generally peaceful vibes. But the roots of yoga are actually mostly spiritual. And body or an embodied way of approaching that is just one of several avenues that follow other practices too, which are called yogas. 
So they're really about spiritual change and transformation. It's not just about, as you said, good vibes, Anna. Mm -hmm. But when this all changed was when the British and Portuguese began their colonializing project. As they entered India, or what is now India, they took yoga and other Hinduisms, quote, uh, which were both in both cases multifaceted practices and distilled them into oversimplified artificial categories, which we now call yoga in Hinduism. And so when you say Hinduisms, that implies that Hinduism is something different than what we normally think of it. Yeah. At its core, the Hindu practice actually is very diverse and even things that when you look into, you know, like, what is Hinduism and what are its core texts and stuff like that, like, even things that we would identify as core texts, like the Vedas and stuff like that, have differing levels of importance in different Hindu practices. And so there's a lot of variation. Right. And so I think it's really important for us as outsiders that to that tradition to really even understand that the ways that it's very commonly talked about, even in interfaith conversations, are not really... They're westernized. Yes. And and some people analogize them to the different denominations. But, like, the differences between the denominations is, like, small potatoes disagreements mm-hmm. or differences. Like Christian denominations. Christian denominations. Small potatoes differences compared to much bigger differences within different Hinduisms. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just to lay that out. And yoga is also diverse like that, Yes, too. exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, within that, colonialism then specifically singled out certain forms of yoga to, quote, prove that indigenous Indian peoples were, quote, savage, right? And they included targeting some of the roots of the asana or position-based traditions we are most familiar with in the West to prove those things. So the things that we now find so popular were in the past labeled as indicators of savagery, right? And... Then I, I understand that, that yoga itself became a tool of political and cultural resistance, though, right? Yeah. So in the late 1800s, it actually became a key element in the Indian movements for reclaiming pride in Indian cultural identity and political self-determination, uh, going from the late 1800s to the early 20th century. And the figure that we'd be most familiar with that relates to that would be Gandhi, right? But he was actually in the latter end of a number of figures who kind of moved that progression. And so, you know, thinking about the roots of modern Western white yoga, how did that get started? So in the World's Fair of 1893, there was an Indian gentleman who came and gave a speech there known as Swami Vivekanand. And he talked about Indian nationalism and yoga as part of that, right? And it became it spiked a, a, a level of interest in people. And from there, it grew in popularity. Uh, it, by the 20s and the 30s, certainly, it was growing in popularity. People were becoming more interested also because there was a number of teachers who emigrated to the U.S. in the 30s especially. But with that, it's important to know that because of immigration policies, U.S. immigration policies in the 1920s, only certain Indians could move to the U.S., And so in some cases, those teachers who came over were highly, what would have been considered within the culture, highly qualified people. And there were other people who came over and taught 
who would not have been considered highly qualified people, right? Mm. And so people are getting then different versions. And alongside that, there's also an interest in Western cultures at this time in general kind of gymnastic athletic ability. And all of these things are fusing together in a mishmash as white people perceive them, right? Mm -hmm. And so now... As all those things became more popular and even yoga became had a huge explosion of popularity in the 1960s, by that time already things had kind of fused in a way that it's hard to know to what degree some of those things have different origins, right? There's definitely evidence to show that some of the positions we would be familiar with as certain yogic positions, whether they simultaneously had versions in a Western culture or they somehow fused themselves in, had a version in a Western culture. But people didn't want... It It was more interesting to do it because it was exoticized, right? Mm-hmm. People didn't want to just go to the gym and go do calisthenics. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do yoga. So right. all of those things come into it, right? Well, and I what I hear from that is that there's this piece around the colonial kind of basic colonial racism, right? That yeah. existed within what we now call India. And that part of the world. But then even beyond that, once there was a degree of, quote, sharing with the West, you know, with Swami Vivekananda and so on, then there were other layers of racism that showed up in the form of racist immigration policies. And then this sort of like mixing of a soup where white people couldn't really or didn't really care to distinguish between different things, even though this is an important spiritual tradition in India and that part of the world that would not be seen as something you can just mix and match. Yes, exactly. And that there is also this element of once it's in a westernized space of exoticizing something that might have very understandable roots, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so then over time, as this became even more and more popular in, let's just say, the United States, white people became the new teachers and, quote, the experts, and therefore the adapters of the tradition more and more. So then you get things like hot yoga, which, just to Mm -hmm. be clear, it's not that there's nothing like that in yogic traditions that come out of um, the the South Asia, but it's more that that model that you might see... (laughs) in a a fitness clinic here in Minnesota does not exist. That's not how it works, right? It's not what it's for. Um, And it's really not for punishing and pushing your body to the limit in the way that it is here um, to make yourself look good or to sweat or whatever, you know? Um, Also, goat yoga. (laughs) Uh Definitely not a thing. And even though we might think of it as like fanciful, I mean, I know I honestly thought that the first time I heard about it too, But that was before I learned about the more real roots of the yoga tradition in the last couple of years of my life. And so then I realized like, oh, that's not just some fanciful combination. That's actually real. People find that really disrespectful, right? It would be like goat Easter. Right, goat Easter. Yeah, like, and, and it's also different than that, too, because... 
you know, it's one thing to adapt Christianity and do weird things with it, which is, you know, we can get upset or not upset about that all day long. But for white people to do it to somebody else's culture yeah. is even worse. But I think you're right. That would be like bringing something really odd to Good Friday yeah. and then expecting people to think that that was fine, yeah. especially as an outsider. So then there's this other piece, Christian yoga, right? And so this is popular in some contexts uh, where people will read Bible verses and then do yoga poses or something along those lines. There is no such thing as Christian yoga, right? It would be like saying Islamic Christianity, sort of. It's not even yeah. quite the same, right? It's it's two different practices that are not meant to combine that way. And even though the yoga tradition can be practiced by someone who is Christian in a way that makes a degree of sense in some in some forms of the yoga path it's not something that you can mold together like that so that combination doesn't work even though yes you can be christian and practice certain forms of yoga also fitness yoga as you were saying also right like just there's no such thing as yoga that's just for fitness because it's a spiritual path right so all of this is to just clarify that the yoga asanas, the the positions, the posture based tradition, the 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 you know you could call it pretzeling, but that's not actually what it's for, right? Is almost all that we know in the West of the yoga tradition. That and saying namaste, which people don't actually <laughs> understand how to do that either, yeah. and when to do it, and what it's for. I so, had a coworker who worked at the bank who would tell everyone namaste, and I was like, dude, <laughs> stop, just <laughs> let let it go. Um, But so we could go way deeper into this and the ways that we sort of, you know, embedded some of the ideas and language and um, patterns of yoga in ways that really don't honor what it truly is as a tradition into the white Western United States context in ways that aren't helpful. So since we can't go deeper in this conversation, we wanted to point you, if you're interested in this topic, if you're someone who's practiced yoga before, who wants to con- to practice it in the future in a more holistic, healthy, respectful way. And decolonialized. De- decolonial, you know, from decolonialized practitioners, right? Yeah. Um, who are usually going to be South Asian practitioners, here are some people you can pay attention to and learn from them directly. Uh, Tejal Patel and Jaisal Parikh uh, from the Yoga is Dead podcast. And I did my best with Tejal's name. I might have said it better the second time, but she goes into a long spiel at the beginning about how people have problems saying her first name. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we we can all learn together from how much we mess that up um, because it is hard to... Remember that people's names are who they are. And so um, trying to do our best is a part of the work. So that's the first podcast that we would suggest, the Yoga is Dead podcast. They use a lot of good humor and conversation and anecdotes. The other person would be Susanna Barkataki. She has a great Instagram page and she has a book called Honoring Yoga's Roots. We will link to both of these things uh, under this podcast and in Stay Curious as well so that you have some clarity about where to go for more information and learning if this is an interesting topic of conversation to you. So having gone through all that, what we want you to hear is that usually this conversation is framed really ahistorically. But what is important is that there are power dynamics present in the current setup of what we would call, you know, how cultural appropriation happens today. Yes, exactly. But that on top of that, that 
these conversations and where we at, are at now has also been shaped historically by those same power dynamics and to some degree heightened versions of them. And so we really can't talk about it only talk, considering the present circumstances, it would be unjust to understand it that way. And so we have to understand both how it came to be where it's at and how those power dynamics and the current power dynamics play together to understand appropriation versus appreciation. It's all woven together. <laughs> but but I think it's important that you say that because, you know, honestly, I hear a lot of people say things like, well, globalism, yeah. you know, insert excuse here for why I should be able to do whatever I want whenever I want it. Yeah. Like globalism has existed in various human forms, history yeah. in various forms for a long time. You can and make to an be, argument for pre-biblical globalism. Right. But to be honest, uh, a lot of those times were defined by colonialism and colonializing yeah. patterns. And the last 500 years of it have been defined by racist and colonialist patterns. So let's be real clear about how old and how far back some of this goes and how respectful we need to be of that. So let's talk about then some gut checks that we can give ourselves because, yeah, there is a lot of history. We aren't going to know all of it. I totally screwed up on goat yoga the first time. You know, like I've never done goat <laughs> yes. yoga, but like I thought it we was. We saw the videos. Right. We saw it the videos. Cute. And it seemed cute. And we were totally wrong about that. Right. Yeah. So this is part of the practice is you learn as you go and you get better as you move along. So these gut checks are definitely not a definitive list. They're just a couple things as a starting point for being able to ask yourself some good questions. So the first question that you can ask yourself is, is this a sacred item or practice? Is this for a rite of passage, for a ceremony, uh, an event? Uh, is it deeply cultural, symbolic, or in some way religious, even if that particular group wouldn't consider what they practice, quote unquote, a religion, right? So indigenous spiritualities don't necessarily consider themselves to be religions, but that doesn't mean it's not a spiritual, deeply cultural practice. So if it is a sacred item or part of a sacred practice, definitely leave it alone. Unless you happen to be gifted it or be invited into it by a knowledgeable cultural insider, right? And I don't mean cultural insider like your white friend who says it's fine for you to come along to something or to have something. I mean an actual racial and cultural insider who is meaningfully tied by family to this context. And that gets tricky how we talk about that. But we really do mean cultural insiders in a way that this is their this culture was part of their formation. Yes, in the sense of not just identity, but also race, quite yeah. honestly. Um, so, for example, these could be things like eagle feathers and things like that um, from an indigenous perspective. But this could be a lot of things, including certain prints and patterns that come out of um, not just indigenous cultures, but also the African continent and different uh, tribal groups and p people groups there as well. The second thing you might want to use as a question to ask yourself is, is this being adapted or sold by people who are not of this racial or cultural background? So, for instance, people who are white or European descended. I mean, primarily that's Primarily, yes, yeah. right, yeah. So if that's the case, then absolutely don't do it, right? It's definitely a form of cultural violence if that were the case, even if white people claim to have, quote, lived with or been taught by cultural insiders. 
So um, I think a lot of examples of this that I could think of, but one of them is the way that food gets treated, where there's a lot of people who become experts on the foods of other cultures, and I'm using experts with quotation marks around it, and then make a ton of money off of selling um, fancified versions of cultural food back to white people, but also to people of that culture sometimes. So um, there's lots of examples of this out there. Rick Bayless is one that I get sort of upset about sometimes because we used to really love him because he um, was actually putting Mexican food on the map in some ways, but then he didn't really give appropriate credit to who he was learning from and put his efforts back into the community and has kind of made a mess of things sometimes along the way. So another example is Chino Latino here in Minneapolis, which actually uses racist imagery and stereotypes in their fonts, in their decor, and all sorts of things like that. Really do not like them, and I do not enjoy their food either yeah. so <laughs> and the way that they they do fusion is very much marketed to a white audience totally. who wants pseudo authentic food like emphasis something exotic on, emphasis on the pseudo mm-hmm. so yeah and then the final thing is you could point to quote-unquote tribal patterns on clothing i thought of an example a couple years ago where urban outfitters actually put a navajo pattern on their a pair of women's underwear which is completely ridiculous, but also something that we've probably all seen versions of somewhere, right? Like whether it's underwear or socks or whatever, right? Well, in this one particular case, someone actually recognized that it was a registered tribal pattern and urban outfitters had to pay, you know, pay money and remove the item from their store. But it is so ubiquitous that most people never catch it, never get caught, never get fined, and they just profit from having stolen, basically. And so those sorts of things are really huge. And then there's all the pieces around adaptation that happen in in art and all sorts of other things where it's just kind of a big mess. So that doesn't mean you can never touch anything ever that's kind of playing with cultures a little bit but just think about who is playing what authority they have and who it's really aimed at who is and who's benefiting right exactly so the final thing is to consider would be is this item or practice often perceived negatively or shunned when worn or done by a cultural insider but seen as edgy and cool or quote exotic when worn or done by a white person Mm. And this is fairly obviously something that you would not want to participate in if this is the case. Um, it actively profits from white privilege and also anti-BIPOC attitudes at the same time. And it, you know, continues to allow prejudice against others. I mean, the truth is, is that people get fired or even killed for their culture, even today, even in the United States. And that is a real thing. It is not just our, your aesthetic adventure or costume. And an example of this would be a simple one would be dreadlocks, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something that there are lots of workplaces that you still can't ha- wear that hairstyle in. Um, the military won't let you have it, all that kind of stuff. And it's one that's culturally and practically designed to be within for to work for African descended hair, right? Right. And works well for that hair type. And it can be very healthy for that hair type. Yes. Whereas people who adopt it who are not of that descent, not only are taking part in something that others get shunned for and they get to look edgy for, but actually it's 
it's usually really bad for your hair right. if that's not the hair type you right. have. You so know? locks can actually harm hair that isn't African descent hair in pretty serious ways. But also, you know, I think about Kylie Jenner and her cornrows, for yeah. instance. And not everyone on this on this uh, pilgrimage may know who Kylie Jenner is, <laughs> but many of us will. Um, and but there's a lot of famous people who get kudos for being yeah. edgy and interesting and you know stylish for things that. Um, are racialized and turned into a version of a class issue around people of color, right? So Kylie Jenner, very, very famous and rich white person, whereas black people who wear that hairstyle can often be seen as quote unquote lower class, which is totally not accurate or yeah. fair or anything. And even though cornrows work well for the hair type. Exactly. So, <laughs> and it's healthy again. Yeah. So I think these are the kind of reasons why we just cannot just take things and not think about what is the impact of me being able to do this and it being seen as a positive or a neutral, whereas someone else doing this could even be seen as like a cultural outsider for doing it at the very least, you could say. Let's move toward thinking about what better looks like. What does better look like when it comes to appreciation, when it comes to celebration, as we talked about in our video? And this is such an important idea because we do want to be able to learn from and appreciate and enjoy cultures that not only are not our own, but can teach us things about um, the world around us and, and other ways of being and other wisdom that's out there. So first of all, one way to do this is to seek out lived cultural insiders to learn about open practices and traditions. And so we've said the word open and closed maybe once or twice in this conversation so far, but when we say open, what we mean are practices or art styles or whatever it is that's cultural, that cultural insiders with authority agree that it can be shared with those outside the culture. So that is, that's a fairly straightforward way of doing it. And then closed would be the opposite, that people with authority inside the culture who are versed in it generally agree that it's not something to be shared with outsiders. The other, the second thing that we'd consider as maybe a way towards better is to respect closed aspects of culture, as well as personal boundaries of your BIPOC friends. So if people are not intentionally inviting you in, don't be fishing around for access, right? People will let you know if they want you to have access. I think that's really important because I actually have some friends who who I have been really interested in some of their practices and some of the, the celebrations that they have and things like this. Mm -hmm. And I've been really open to the idea of like, gosh, I would, if they ever invited me, I would love to be a part of that. But if they, ha sometimes they've invited me and sometimes they have not. And me going around saying like, I would love to be invited to a, insert practice here, yeah. or I would yeah. love to be given an X, or I would love to be educated about Y, just doesn't quite sound good. And it people can feel how grabby that is. Yeah. So then the third one would be learn the meaning of what you buy or participate in as a non-expert. So in other words, when we say learn about it, we don't say become a new expert on it. Don't read 12 books, right? But do some Googling, learn a little bit, check out a book, right? Like maybe, maybe ask a couple casual questions without like, you know, grilling people, but learn a little bit about what you're buying or participating in, because that's a way to not only be respectful, but it's also a way to deepen your understanding and appreciation for what you can access in a healthy way. Yeah. Then we'd say buy from cultural insiders. So an example of this would be that uh, the long known dream catcher, has mm -hmm. been much maligned. Um, but by, by people who talk about cultural appropriation. Exactly. Um, 
But Dreamcatchers are a real part of certain indigenous groups, certain American indigenous groups tradition and have certain purposes. So if you were to buy a Dreamcatcher, just be sure you're buying it from an indigenous person who is getting the actual profits from it, right? Uh, in our particular case, in Minnesota and Wisconsin here, this actually would tie to Anishinaabe cultural traditions Mm -hmm. and traditions right so that would be especially appropriate because dream catchers actually tie to these specific tribes Mm -hmm. if you're in nevada and you're in a place where they're like the native people here made this it's probably not as connected to their specific tribal traditions but you would but it's still better by far then if you're just buying dream catchers willy nilly yeah on etsy <laughs> or you know as you drive between every single you know road end pit stop yes exactly like don't buy it from the local gas station don't buy it on etsy from some white person who's making it out of macrame style right yeah. like i've seen some of these things where i'm just like oh my gosh you know like just stop <laughs> you know and so um buying from cultural insiders is a way to redirect money to communities of color and it's a way to respect the authority of those traditions yeah. to adapt how they want to adapt. Yeah. So the next thing is food. Listen, find recipes online or in cookbooks from cultural insiders and learn more as you go about ingredients and techniques and so on. Elsa and I have really loved, you have really loved doing this with me in the last couple of years as we've found recipes from, um, you know, various traditions, including we have a couple indigenous cookbooks, like we have the sous chef cookbook yes. and things like that. Um, I recently bought the Jubilee cookbook, which is a cookbook about black American cooking traditions. Yeah. And, and the great diversity within that. Exactly. The great diversity within it um and there's other books as well right and and there's fun books too like there's this book that i've recently been reading that's called it's a cookbook that's called indian ish (laughs) and i cannot i can't i'll post the link but i'm not going to pull the name of the author off the top of my head but she's this woman who's like listen my mom couldn't access all the ingredients when she came here we were kind of an isolated family and so this is how she kind of reinterpreted her tradition for us here in the united states and this is actual indian cooking too so like i think what's really cool about that for you and i elsa is it's not like you know we only ate Mexican food at home that was like 100% pure, made from scratch, yeah. and, you know, unadulterated. Like, no, yeah. like you, well, then people we'll... from any culture adapt their food to the time they have and the context they're working in. Yeah. And so we shouldn't be like reversed purists where we're like the only good yeah. Mexican food or the only good Indian food or the only good whatever is made from scratch, made with all, you know, correct ingredients and takes 17 hours to produce. You know what I mean? So I think some of these things, just finding people who have authority to do those adaptations and to talk about those things can be really fun and enlivening. So I think that that's a huge piece, too. The only thing, the only caveat I would put on that is I just read about this the other day and I was like, why, why would white people do this? <laughs> but um, somebody was cooking food that was intended for like death rituals. So it would be like ceremonial food that you might put on, like say an ofrenda altar yeah. for um, the me- Mexican culture, yeah. but even like specific food, right? So like usually ofrenda food is just the food that the person liked in life, right? Yeah. 
but in some cultures, the food is specific and only for certain ritual purposes, right? So it would be like cooking communion wafers that would only be served in Catholic church and being like, look, I'm cooking, I'm cooking white Western food. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, no, you're cooking like a religious tradition special food, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the only caveat we put on that. Otherwise, learn from people and, and grow in that area. Yeah. And then the final thing we'd say is, is this the final thing? Do we have one more? We have one more. Okay. But your final pen, thing. The penultimate um, <laughs> is to stay in your lane, right? So you don't have to necessarily police other white people, but do feel free to point out issues and then highlight BIPOC voices, right? So you don't have to become an expert. Please do stay humble, but feel free to just give a nudge yes. to other white people. You just don't have to shove them. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't have to fight the fight for everything. But you can recognize and point out things where you're like, you know what? I kind of heard that buying Dreamcatchers at Target is maybe not very cool or respectful to indigenous communities. Yes, exactly. Right? Like, you don't have to to make it a huge thing. But pointing it out and inviting people to something better is always good. Finally, practice holy longing. Or what Barbara Brown Taylor calls holy envy. Somebody actually brought up the word envy in their um, small group reflection kind of write-up. And I thought that was great. And it made me think about this. Because Barbara Brown Taylor, when she talks about holy envy, she was actually talking about learning about other faiths. But the piece that's important here is recognizing that our holy longing or our like admiration and respect and just like, gosh, I wish that was something that was a part of my culture or part of my tradition that that can be something that can deepen us rather than just make us clingy, right? Because when we say, I wish that was a part of my tradition, so I'm going to take it, that's not healthy. What it can do is it can make us go, gosh, why is there that like emptiness in me or that longing in me? What is missing from how I practice or who who, and how I associate in the world that I could embody in a different kind of way without stealing, without taking, without just kind of clinging to something. And that is really deep spiritual work. Yeah. And also looking for like, is there something in my tradition that is maybe not as well developed as that? Yes. But is a granule of what that points to and that I can at least connect to better by reaching into the own root, my own roots, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so... I think all of those things are really important that we take that longing and point it back inward toward ourselves to take a journey rather than going outwards and just kind of grabbing something and being like, okay, now it's mine and I'm done, (laughs) right? Um, It also is way more respectful of the weight and history of racism that we've talked about at the setting of the stage of this conversation and the incredible amount of endurance and sort of energy that was put into preserving and maintaining and adapting these practices and cultural aspects and artistry elements and foods to the context that people were living in, whether they were in the diaspora or in their own countries and living in new times. So it's just respecting that and respecting yourself enough, you know, if you're a white person, respecting yourself enough to let yourself have that bigger journey instead of just grabbing things that look shiny, you know? So um, we hope that this has been a helpful bit of conversation that gives a little bit more grounding to this conversation for you and helps you look for other articles that sort of are coherent with this and broaden it out in ways that help you. So we also mentioned that we wanted to touch again on one of the core threads of this pilgrimage, which is using history and local history in particular 
as a sacred text that can give us insights, teachings, and help us foster transformation within ourselves. In the context of the theme of this cycle, we've actually been hearing stories of joy and jubilee living from BIPOC people and communities actually all along the way in our pilgrimage back since September. So some examples of this include... When we talked about Emily Gray, we talked a lot about the kind of choices she had to face. And this was back in cycle two two Mm -hmm. in our video when we talked about the Grays helping Eliza Winston. Yes. Sorry. No, it's (laughs) fine. I'm just, I'm, I'm pulling, I'm pulling context (laughs) too for myself. And so we focused on some of those things and some of the consequences she and Ralph had to face. But equally, we mentioned that she had a huge amount of connection to her community and her church, her family life, and that all of those things brought her a lot of contentment and joy. We mentioned she didn't look at her life in Minnesota as like, well, that was a big waste. Mm -hmm. So she definitely cultivated that sense all throughout her life. On top of that, she had a lifelong attitude towards staying engaged in activism while also living life all around those choices. Mm -hmm. So as we talked about, she was helping Eliza Winston make her bid for freedom in the midst of having a new baby. Mm. Right. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important that, that life weaves through activism. Yes. Right. And that's so powerful to remember. And that means that the joy of your new baby discovering something new in the world around them or giving their smile for the first time or whatever might be, happening at the same time as you're going through something incredibly stressful but powerful in the activism work that that you're doing. And so for people of color, I think that's really important to lift up both sides of that, that you you have to hold on to the richness of life too, you know? Um, so it also makes me think of Lena Smith and her many careers. Like I loved learning about the, yes. the, the rich diversity <laughs> of things that Lena Smith did when we were learning about her in cycle three in our video where we talked about Lena Smith and her legal career and her legal help for the Lees as they were, you know, enduring um, the process of having bought a home in a white neighborhood and so on and so forth and trying to make a point about equity. But that Lena Smith's entry into the legal field had happened after a couple, like a failure or two, and had happened after a lot of moving around between different industries over her younger life. Um, Also, I think about the Lees and their dreams for their daughter, you know, I mean, they're having her come home from school escorted by the police, right? But then trying to have a nice home life, trying to cook food together or whatever it is they were able to do, right? And trying to just live whatever normal looked like in those years, but also beyond those years, because those years don't have to define who they were, right? And that they only did those years because it mattered both to them, but also to them in terms of what it would mean for their daughter, right? Nobody goes through that just because... They really it's kind of going to matter for you. Like, yeah. you'd be like, I'll live somewhere else, wherever. Right. You know, but to fight for something that has meaning for, yeah, for themselves, but also for the next generation. Exactly. Right? Um, and so, as I recall, also, they also moved in nearby to Lena later They on. moved in next door to her. Wow. And lived next door to her for the rest of their lives. That is so interesting to me. So, in some ways, like, they formed this bond with her um, through this, you know, in some ways quite harrowing experience. But that became friendship. Yeah. And and they with her and many others in the community where they lived had reshaped that community to be a welcoming place for them. So they so, got yeah. to live later in their lives in a like a loving, welcoming community space. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just, I don't know. I think that's really beautiful. So having said that, 
we have said before that, you know, often, especially white people, often like to tell stories of BIPOC history only focusing on racism, trauma, and difficulties. And that's true both for history and actually also present day stories, as we were talking about with what people choose to read in terms of BIPOC writing, right? Mm -hmm, Totally. And we've also mentioned that this sort of narrows or flattens the experiences of people of color and dishonors their complexity and the richness of their lives, as we're discussing here. So I like to think of re-looking at these stories to see what are new angles as treating history like we might treat the parables of the Bible. Which is a little tricky because (laughs) we do not always relate to the parables or the Bible as a whole in a good way when it comes to that. Um, Sometimes we're looking for the right answers or the one correct interpretation and as if like the parables or the Bible or something like that was a math problem, right? Yeah. But history, like the Bible, works better when we approach it maybe like poetry, Mm -hmm. right? With compassionate imagination and curiosity and so on, right? But with history, the text is always expanding, the length and the breadth of it, correct? Because we we can understand more as we look back. We see more evidence for experiences we hadn't seen before. And obviously, we're moving forward in time. So there's always more history to be had. (laughs) And I think that's so fascinating. And in some ways, it's kind of maddening, because there's there's so much, let's just put in quotation marks, text to history, right? Like the Bible is quite large, uh, the Christian Bible, but even then there's just the 66 books, right? So, but history as a whole, there's so many avenues you can go down and you can learn about the tradition of colonialism. You know, not it's not a tradition, but the history <laughs> of it is a tradition, but it's not a good one. Yeah. Um, the, the history of colonialism within what we now call India. Right. And that would be a history that would it, take someone's entire scholarly career to learn about right? Even a small part of it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like one specific piece of that, not just that whole thing. And there's that's true for things all over the world, all throughout different periods of history, and so on and so forth. So I think that that richness is so huge. But just being able to come back to stories in history, in the way that we come back to stories in the Bible again and again. And here we are just coming off of Holy Week, having read some of the same scripture passages that we read last year, and the year before, (laughs) and the year before that, and you know, however long we've been participating in Christian circles. And somehow, if we're lucky, Easter feels new every time. Yeah. And we're always looking for new angles. Exactly. So turning history stories like that and examining them from a new perspective and always coming back to them and... Kind of filling in the blanks, you know? Yes, exactly. And asking ourselves, what are the parts of the human experience that I haven't understood or exposed about this yet, right? So, you know, we have often looked at the Eliza Winston and Emily Gray story. We took it from a uni- from a specific angle to understand their activism and their mm-hmm. choices. There were other angles we could have taken it from. Totally. And so always going back to these stories and re-examining them in the way that we sometimes even do for our own lives mm-hmm. and reshape the meaning around stuff. But at least in our own lives, we have a sense of like, I was there. I, I know because I was there. <laughs> but... But in these other stories, we don't know because we weren't That was there. a quote from the movie Clue, everyone, yeah. <laughs> in case you missed it. Um, if you don't know what Clue is, I guess you're missing out on that, too. It's classy, <laughs> it's classy own experience. Um. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that that's a really good point also that like 
we don't have that layer of personal knowledge for many pieces of history, but we can also bring that curiosity to the front, exactly. right? And we can also bring, like you said, compassionate imagination before that allows us to sort of think like, gosh, this is a whole person experiencing these things, not just a series of facts and dates and yeah. accomplishments. And so what else that, was happening simultaneously? Exactly. And so then it becomes not so much about finding the final solutions or the correct answers to history or biblical questions, for instance. Although let's be very clear that we need to refute and resist bad takes on history and the Bible very clearly, right? Yeah. So this isn't us saying, oh, it's all relative and you can just use your compassionate imagination <laughs> and make whatever conclusions you want. Like, incorrect, yeah. right? Um, because we've come to this conversation with some very specific, like, we actually made a list of our loyalties, Elsa, yes. before we started this pilgrimage as for ourselves so that we could focus on what our are we picking things trying to come back to these goals, this light, this um, this this sense of clarity about what it is that we're trying to do? But sometimes, you know, using our imagination and holding possibilities lightly in the midst of those core loyalties or those core sort of values that we bring to the mix can be really um, powerful. And sometimes examining the same story, even with those loyalties, but just looking from a different angle will reveal new things. Exactly. Because like, for instance, we could have not chosen to talk about Eliza Winston and Emily Gray and picked a different story altogether. Yes. And that would have brought new things to the front. And so there's always those possibilities. And that increases our humility too. So we say all this to point out that this is another way to resist using what we do know about history aggressively. So there's really two ways that people tend to do this, uh, white people specifically, um, white people toward BIPOC folks, and then white people toward other white people. And really, this is the difference between using history with a sense of appreciation and reverence versus as a form of domination. So we want to kind of go through the two ways that this happens. First is the expert model, which for white people also relates to how we were talking about cultural appropriation and often shows up in relation to conversations with BIPOC people. Right. And so this is specifically talking about how white people approach this. This is not the same thing as looking to people of color as history experts or lay experts in their own culture. Right. So we're not talking about there are no experts because there are. Right. And those are going to be people of color who are insiders and culturally embedded in their own context. But white people should not be experts on the cultures of people of color. That's exactly. where we're going here. And along these lines, I kind of wanted to tell a story that relates a bit. Mm. Now, when I lived in Washington, D.C., I lived with a woman who was very blonde and from Texas, from Dallas. And I don't remember what had happened. I had ordered tacos or she had ordered tacos, someone from a, a place nearby. And we were living in an area that was well known as having a lot of native central and south american people and mexicans right uh and that tacos were a common thing in the area and you could get some quite good tacos mm. now i'm jealous right yeah so uh <laughs> someone was eating tacos at any rate and somehow the conversation turned and she started 
expressing to us how she was a, quote, taco expert. <laughs> she had lived in Dallas, uh, which is kind of near Mexico, and has some Mexican people around it, uh, or Mexican-American people. And so therefore, because she had eaten more than three tacos in her lifetime, <laughs> she was now a taco expert, and she could tell you what was like the bestest tacos and what were not good enough. Oh my gosh. And she knew you were Mexican. She knew I was like Mexican-American, Mexican American, right? And like it was one of those I was like so pissed <laughs> because I was like, excuse me, <laughs> because it's just there is only one taco expert in this room and it's not you. And but actually, that's... I wouldn't even count myself as a taco expert, exactly, right? Like exactly, I, I have had tacos all my life. I've had it by someone who lived within the culture. It means a lot to me and is a powerful emotional connector. And at the same time, I'm like, that doesn't mean I've had all the tacos or that I'm an expert in them. <laughs> right. I just happen to like them and respect the culinary tradition. Well, and you respect the culinary tradition because you are perhaps even more aware than she was about how incredibly diverse Mexican cuisine really is. Yes. Right? It's one of the most diverse cuisines in the world. Yes. Um, just regionally and so on and so forth. So literally, I've had moments even in the last six months where I've thought to myself, that's not a thing I've ever heard of that you know, dish being prepared X way before. And then I go look it up and I'm like, oh, that's how they make it in Sonora. Yeah. Or that's how they make it in Chiapas or whatever. You know what I mean? And I had no clue because I had never seen it made that way before, not just in our family, but in any of our travels yeah. or in any of our conversations. So we cannot be experts, even as cultural insiders, yes. right? Unless we made that like our specific culinary expertise. Yes. And what frustrated me so much is that she couldn't just be thoughtful and curious and not, like, be a dominating influence in what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and it was so reductive and voyeuristic. It was divorced from any cultural meaning or understanding. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> you had a couple feelings. I had some feelings. I, I heard about feelings. it. I yeah. heard about it at the time. <laughs> so we may want to judge her, but we all want to do this at times, especially the closer we are to whiteness and the more damage it then does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it can be weirdly tempting to do things like this with history or with culture and so on. Um, and you just, it, it's like this involuntary, like, urge to share something <laughs> that you know or have heard or something like that. And it, it really, honestly, it is a form of verbal vomit. Yes. And I think it's really important because that is the opposite that is what we're trying to push against in one at least one part of the the spiritual capacity of refraining right because refraining keeps the white verbal vomit at bay <laughs> or at least more so <laughs> yeah if yeah. you don't like the 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 intensity of that image too bad sometimes it actually feels that way to people of color right um, and the truth is, is that it can seem like teaching BIPOC people about their own culture or silencing them or overriding their lived experience, kind of like what you were saying, Elsa, right? So just, friends, don't be a taco expert. <laughs> just practice refraining. Be curious instead of having to know things or to just demand further education. So, Elsa, how would you embody, like, sort of asking or talking about questions related to culture or history or things like that in a less aggressive way when you're talking to a person of color, because that's what we're talking about right now, like getting away from expert, moving toward a more humble model. What's a way to engage that's a little healthier? Well, I think like as an example, right, if I was talking to someone who was Somali, I think 
the thing we'd want to stay away from is be like, so I heard you have a strong poetic tradition. Let me <laughs> hi, tell you about hi, the things I've learned. my name is Elsa. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, instead, even if you want to signal to that person maybe that you're someone who's interested in their culture and that you are interested in seeing them more fully as a whole person with their own cultural traditions coming with them, you maybe could say something as just an offering of like, you know, it was interesting. I was just hearing something about the Somali poetic tradition the other day. I thought it was really fascinating. And, you know, it's something that I'm definitely interested in continuing to learn more about because I just recognize there's so much to it. It gives them an opening if they want to tell you more, but by no means demands that they be the one to tell you more. It can also imply, I'll go read my own book. Yeah. And it can also say, you know, I know that often there's a lot that you leave behind of who you are. And I just want you to know that I'm trying to learn about what are those things so that yeah. you can be more comfortable knowing that I'm trying to reach out. Maybe, right? Maybe, maybe. But, but honestly, I would I would wait to get to know that person, right? Yes. Like, so I think yeah. you're, I mean, this you're not making be the some assumptions, yeah, this right? You're making be, some yeah, assumptions. Sorry. But like, I'm, I'm saying you're making assumptions in the conversation that we want to like spell out for everyone. So like the first time you meet someone... The first couple times you meet them is not the time to talk about Somali poetry, right? No. Like, just be chill, friends, right? Like, yeah. just get to know people on their own terms. Treat them like a whole person and not like an object that's going to teach you something. Yeah. Okay? So I think that's the first thing. After several conversations, you might bring up what you said, Elsa, right? Yeah. In the context of things that actually are relevant, right? Like, you might not just bring that up out of the blue and be like, well, we've had five conversations. And on this sixth conversation, tick, I'd tick, like tick. to take yeah. this moment to ask you a little bit about your culture. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, just, like, when I say be chill, I mean that very literally. Like, relax. If you're actually getting to know people on their own terms, eventually, most people will want to share some things with you. Yeah. In patience is going to be a huge part of it. And in fact, we know that because like, if we have people who we know who practice certain European based traditions that we're interested in, it doesn't mean that we go up to them. And that's the first thing we start talking about, right? Hopefully. I mean, also, this is about basic social skills. I do like to go to Germans and be like, tell me more about Lederhosen. Lederhosen, exactly. So, like, this is pretty basic stuff. Get to know the person first. Don't just treat them as an embodiment of their culture, even though, like, yes, all of us are, but that's not the extent of who we are. Bring up your interest in an actual context so, so that it doesn't feel demanding or like you're fishing for something and leave it open-ended because, hey, they could have some reason that they don't engage in that part of their tradition, right? Like there are plenty of Somali people who, especially in, you know, the different generations of, of immigration who might not be as engaged with the Somali poetry tradition yeah. or so on and so forth, right? And that's cool too. And it's reflective of the diversity of lived experience in an actual living culture. Totally. And that's something we know about, Anna, you and I, because in our own family, because of the missionary white Presbyterian influence several generations back, we don't do Dia de Muertos or Las Posadas or something like that. You know, those are distinctly Catholic things and we weren't raised Catholic. And we actually had some awkward moments at church growing up where not only were church people sort of cherry picking from a Mexican or Latina cultural base around some of these pieces, but without talking to actual Latina or Mexican people like ourselves in the congregation. But also they were disappointed in us because we wouldn't embody a certain version of Mexicanness or Latinness that they had stereotyped. Latinidad. Latinidad. Yes. I'm sure that's how they would have called it. <laughs> 
Um, so this isn't to complain about any particular context or, or moment, but it's just to say this is part of our experiences growing up. And that's just a tiny piece of what some cultures experience every day all the time, right? And so there's nothing wrong with any of these versions of Latinidad that people were interested in, right? For instance, they were beautiful, just like Somali poetry, right? And I think our appreciation for them, even though they weren't what we grew up with, is very real. But yeah. interactions with people of color around history, culture, and so on needs to embody enough of the different spiritual capacities that we've talked about in order to not just replicate white supremacy in another type of form. Like, there's only one right way to do things. Um, I'm trying to be a good person and be a perfectionist about things. I'm trying to know everything, right? Like, these are the things we're trying to push against with the anti-racism spiritual capacities. And in not employing those capacities, effectively what we're doing is flattening history or people's present realities. Okay, so, you know, in talking about this, we've sort of kind of melded these two pieces together around cultural appropriation and history, but that's because they're so tied together to begin yeah. with in some ways, right? So being able to use our history knowledge can go wrong in other ways, too, away from that humility and compassionate imagination and so on. Um, and another way that it can go wrong is when we take on the role of speaking for people of color when confronting racism and other white people. So this is the way it goes wrong when white people are talking to other white people. Right. And it's because instead of just being clear and assertive and in partnership with BIPOC voices and people, it can try and take over the work for them. Exactly. Right. Like it becomes sort of ham handed and it's partially because the distinction is lost between being an anti-racist partner and to be very clear, I am very deliberately avoiding the term ally here. I could say anti-racist ally because there's been a lot of conversation about how saying you're an ally is not really something that one should label themselves with, right? Um, whether it's being an LGBTQIA plus ally or being an anti-racist ally. It's sort of more a description of an action, like embodying anti-racism. You're an ally in the moment that you do something that actually shows up as anti-racist, okay? So it's not a permanent stable thing. It's something that you either do or don't do in the moment. And over time, maybe you build a track record with people of color, for instance, in this case, where they're like, hey, so-and-so is a really great partner or ally, right? Yeah. Cool, right? <laughs> but don't start labeling yourself that way, especially if you're still building your track record, <laughs> right? And in doing this, it's important because otherwise we can lose the distinction between trying to live with... Uh, anti-racist practices yeah. uh, as a partner or alongside BIPOC people or acting as if we are the ones being offended or harmed. And I do want to say here with this, I think it can feel sometimes like, especially as you start to get into this work and start to care about it, it can feel like, oh, but I do feel offended and I do feel harmed because of my compassion for, mm -hmm. because I'm now seeing this and it's hard to watch when I actually pay attention. And we know, we agree. Um, and at the same time, we have to recognize that that pain is real, and yet it is not as severe as recognizing that that pain is happening to literally people in your community, literally your family members, potentially could happen to you, those kinds of things. So 
as much as those are real pains, if, you know, BIPOC people are having to be refraining amidst that kind of pressure, we can feel it and still refrain mm-hmm. and play our role. Right, exactly. I think that's a super important point. And it's also obviously, you know, I'm going to use a gentle word of annoying, but it's way more than just annoying and silencing of people of color because it is a way of recentering yourself. Yes. Right? It's a way of being like, my emotions have been harmed. I promise you that if you are white, your emotions and your experience is not the one being the most harmed, right? So it really makes no sense to center yourself in that moment and pretty much in any moment in this work <laughs> as a white person, that's just not going to be the job. So it's it's hard to actually live that out, but there are some better ways. And so among those better ways would be a few things. First of all, start with humility. So for instance, something I that we learned or that I realized or didn't know. Right. So those phrases can kind of start off your comment as a way to sort of practice that humility in the way that I was talking about goat yoga, right? Yes. Like I screwed up goat yoga. That's a way to claim that this is not me speaking as an expert or an omniscient person who gets it already and totally never makes mistakes. Then you could add facts, right? Point back to the diversity of BIPOC voices. Right. And we sort of did this in our conversation about yoga. And we tried to say, hey, first of all, here's some of the things we know and can talk about. But, you know, A, you're not going to give that whole spiel to some random person who's talking about how much they love yoga. But being able to give you resources to keep learning is the biggest thing, right? Pointing back to Susanna Barkataki and others. Yeah. And then if you need to continue to push this conversation with a white person who's not getting it, suggest a healthier way and clearly stick to it, even if confronted with white fragility. But also know that not everything, and in many ways, not most things, about the histories of people of color or culture can be your fight. And we sort of said this before about staying in your lane uh, when we were talking about cultural appropriation. If you don't have people of color clearly asking you to join them in that situation or moment, then maybe just realizing that you've said your piece, you've given information, you've offered alternate ways forward, and sometimes that has to be what you can offer, right? Like you can't you can't just keep going after people who are white and who are feeling very belligerent about their point of view most of the time because it may not be your lane to do so. And don't get there too soon. Just know that sometimes you have to say your piece and let it go, especially online or in other places where we aren't in deep community. Being an armchair activist about this stuff isn't the way toward healthy activism. Mm -hmm. So as we think about history in this cycle, we think maybe about Rondo, the history of North Minneapolis, the immigration stories and community development stories of Hmong, Somali, and other groups. I'm really personally also left with a sense of richness and depth with of all the things that there are still to explore. I mean, we had to leave out entire, like, multiple, multiple cultural groups, right? Like, we could just highlight some of the main ones, but there are tons more. And, I mean, obviously... Even within the ones we did highlight, we... Right. We we were sparse with the information. Very sparse, right? But we could only give so much in the main reading, so we put a ton of stuff in State Curious, but even that was minimal. And then on top of that, there was, you know, I wanted to talk about the Lebanese community that that grew, kind of grew alongside of the West St. Paul community, of Latino community, because those are our cultures in our family. Yes. And I was shocked to find out a couple years ago that there was a Lebanese-Mexican 
um, grocery store called Joseph's in West St. Paul. And I was yeah. like, what? And this was where our mom had gone for groceries for the first to, couple of years. And she to get tortillas here. because those Lebanese stores would often also carry goods for Mexican customers exactly. because they recognized it was a need, which made me feel weirdly good. Yes, um, exactly. So, I mean, this would have been maybe not, maybe around the time she met our dad, but like, yeah. you know, it's just so amazing that though that cultural combination that was in our family is here in Minnesota too. Unexpectedly. And unexpectedly. And so there's all this richness and depth for us to find. And we just like glimmered on the very tippy tippy top. Yeah. And this is one of the things I love most about history is that there's always more there. And there's real joy in that, right? We are always invited to keep learning and growing. And that's one of my spiritual practices is engaging with history in this way. Mm -hmm. I remember that for years you would read like a little bit of history before bed, almost like it was a devotional, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's really powerful that that depending on how we embody that, it can be a way that as a spiritual practice, it can humanize us and deepen us. And finally, we want to ask, how do we know we're headed towards something healthier? Mm -hmm. So a few of these things might be being able to be present with discomfort without fleeing either emotionally or mentally or physically. Right. And so, you know, for me also, what this looks like in real life is just being able to recognize that, you know, when I'm in a moment of feeling distressed or feeling like I made a mistake or something like that, that I can sit with that and take a breath instead of needing to obviously respond right away or needing to prove how good I am. Right. So that's like a really simple one. Like, how do we know that we're headed in that better direction? Those are some of the things that I can recognize is I'm slower to respond and more thoughtful about it without just looking like I don't care. Right. So I'm engaged, but I'm not just here to explain myself. Yeah. And then we'd say maybe being able to know what generally genuinely restores your grounding and then doing it. And so what is that for you, Elsa? Like, what helps you restore your grounding when you're in these sorts of moments and conversations with your anti-racism work? What helps you feel grounded? I think for me, this would be maybe something like, right now I'm reading a really good book on some different ways of thinking about how to be brave in the world. Mm. And it's it's organized with each chapter is you know, between two and four pages. And so effectively, I can read a chapter a day, you know, and and let that be a practice for myself right now. So for me, it might be something as simple as that. Right. And I think that those pieces around our grounding and responding to our basic um, humanity, uh, I think is really important. So for me, actually, it's the little herb garden that I have started in the window of my office, um, I've got like this mint and sage and a couple other things in, in there and the smells of those and just kind of almost like visiting them every day <laughs> is a way to remember that aspect of growing new things in my life and that freshness that comes from them. And so those little, little pieces of grounding in even just in our bodies or in our values or in learning something new can be really important. And then finally, we'd say trying to be okay with your mess ups and your own imperfections or foolishness, um, your honest ignorance, while still striving for more. 
Right. And so we kind of have talked about this in that last section about what we want to do better and how we can do that in a really humane way. So as we kind of conclude our time, we're hoping that some of these pieces, these extended bits of conversation have been helpful to you along the way, and that you continue to send us your wonderings and your questions and your comments as we round on towards cycle five. Thank you for spending some more time with us today. And thanks and see you next time.